0: Good singing this morning, good worship, and it's good to have you here with us live in the service, good to have you with us online this morning as we spend some time in God's Word. So take your copy of God's Word, if you would, and turn to Revelation chapter 16, and I know we put the verses up on the screen, and that's really for convenience purposes, but there's no substitute for you having your copy of God's Word, and uh, and it's uh, not a sin to write in your Bible if you want to take notes, so it's okay to do that too. Revelation 16, we began last week looking at this chapter at uh, the seven bowl judgments. Now let me, uh, just for continuity purposes, we're going to kind of reset uh, why these are happening, what's going on in chapter 16, and we'll review the first five very quickly as we look at the bowl judgments, number six and number seven, predominantly this morning. The bowl judgments are part of a broader set of judgments in the, revel- in the tribulation as revealed to us here in the book of Revelation you all understand that uh, the next prophetic event to happen, the Bible tells us it's a rapture of the church. Jesus is going to come back, call his church out of the world. Now we, we don't know when that's going to happen. The Bible says it's, uh, it's imminent, meaning it can happen at any time. I don't believe there are any prophecies left to be fulfilled. When I read the Bible, Jesus could come at any time. Now, when Jesus raptures the church... The tribulation will be inaugurated with that. In other words, the Antichrist will come to power. The world will be in utter chaos. We've talked about this in the past uh, as we worked up to this point in, in the book of Revelation. The world will be in utter chaos. Satan will raise up his man, uh, the Antichrist. Uh, there will be a false prophet that will come along and lead a false religion in the world. And the world will be uh, in total chaos and, and rebellion against God. In that time, God will begin to pour out a series of judgments on the world. And they come in three sets of seven. There are, the first judgments are the seal judgments. There are seven of them, and we talked about that early on. And then following the seal judgments will be seven trumpet judgments. And then following the trumpet judgments, of course, are the bowl judgments, will, which will be at the very end. Now, uh, something that I will remind us about, when we read about these judgments, they're all judgments, but they start out uh, less severe and by the end, in the bold judgments, become more severe. So it's a progressive severity, meaning God starts judging. And then, uh, as he gets near the end, as we read these judgments today, you'll see that unless God cut the time short, no humanity could live. Nobody would be able to survive on the planet. Now, why, you might ask yourself, why would God begin um, with less severe judgments? and move toward more severe judgments. Well, it is the character of God, and that is gracious. Now, when God judges, or in the life of a Christian, when God chastens us, what is the purpose of that? It is to draw us back, right? It is to draw us close to God. In other words, when God begins to work on our lives, he wants to draw us close. God judges sin, but he does it with not only the intention to judge the wrong but with the ulterior motive of love to draw people to him. And so a progressive judgment, meaning it gives people opportunity to say, uh, this thing that I'm in, this sin is wrong, this rebellion is wrong, and I need to repent and I need to come to God. And as people reject God and they rebel against him, then the judgment gets more severe. In uh, 1 Timothy 2.4, the Bible tells us that God would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's God's heart. And so as we see these progressive Judgments in the book of Revelation is because those people who will be alive in that seven year period will have the opportunity to be saved, but many of them won't. Most of them we will see will reject God. Now, let me review very quickly the first five judgments that we spent a considerable amount of time on last week. If you missed that, you can go back and watch it online, it's archived. When the bold judgments begin, I would suggest in in chronology that it's very near the end, maybe within weeks, maybe maybe not even a month or two, because as you will see from these judgments, life cannot be sustained without the things that God's going to remove, primarily water uh, and the food supply. And so this will be right at the very end. Now, when the seventh bowl judgment happens, as soon as that happens, Jesus is coming back. Okay, so it's right at the end. Last week we saw in verse 2, look back up in your Bible there, uh, the first bowl judgment says, So the first angel went out and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worked his image. So the first bowl judgment was God touched them physically, and we talked about it extensively. Uh, boils, sores, oozing and nasty and sore and swollen. And 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 listen, I said last week when when. When we're touched physically, it really draws us to think about God, doesn't it? Because it touches our humanity if we're touched with some physical element, Well, God does that right out of the gate here in the bold judgments. He touches them with this, with this sore, with this, these sores. Now, the idea is not just one sore, but they have a lot of them. And so they're miserable, and God touches them physically. I pointed out last week, very quickly, if you notice this, it came upon those who had the mark of the beast, meaning God separates out his people. Those who were saved in the tribulation, God will protect from that judgment. They won't have the sores, which I think is kind of neat. Uh, you know, the lost men and women will be looking over at those who are saved, and, and most of those saved people will be in jail because Antichrist will be arresting them and killing them and slaughtering them, and they'll be just fine. Uh, but the people who have the mark of the beast will be suffering under this judgment. And then the second bold judgment will follow quickly right behind that, and you find that in verse 3. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it became blood as of a dead man and every living creature in the sea died. Back in the second trumpet judgment, uh, under the second trumpet judgment, God turned one-third of the oceans into blood. Uh, you remember that plague happened in Egypt as well when Moses uh, did the miracle in the, in, the, in, the, in the river, Nile River became blood. Well, God's going to turn a third of the oceans into blood be devastating on, on the ecosystem and the food supply and all that, shipping, the whole deal. But here, in the second bowl judgment, God's going to turn all the oceans into blood. We talked about the implications of that last week, the, uh, the environmental implications, the loss of food, the death of all the animals in the ocean. Uh, it's going to be devastating upon the earth. And then while the world's reeling from those two things, the, the, the boils and the, and the oceans, notice the third one in verse 4. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And God's going to take away the fresh water supply. Now, you'll remember, again, under the third trumpet judgment, God had taken away a third of the water supply. He had turned it into poison. Uh, it was bitter. In other words, you couldn't drink it. And so now God takes away all the fresh water supply. This is why I'm sharing with you that I believe this has to be right at the very end of the tribulation because no one can live without water. And so the fresh water supply is devastated and water is going to be a hot commodity uh, right at the end of the uh, tribulation. And then the fourth bowl judgment in verse 8. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and power was given him to scorch men with fire. Amidst all these things that are going on on the earth, the, the sickness, the boils and the loss of the ocean and the loss of fresh water, God's going to turn up the heat of the sun. And we point out last week, God in his great grace and sovereignty as creator created the entire universe. And he put the earth right where it's supposed to be in the right distance from the sun. And, and uh, we have these wonderful temperatures and you can go to places where it's cooler and you can go to places where it's warmer. But in this day, when God pours out this judgment on the earth, this bold judgment, this fourth angel, uh, God's going to turn up the intensity of the sun and it will scorch people, meaning it'll be deadly to be out in the middle of the day without protection. It'll be hot. Uh, I believe there'll be incredible ramifications from that. Uh, again, I pointed out last week that today we worry about the ice caps, the polar ice caps melting. Uh, not yet, but yes. When this when this happens, when God turns up the intensity of the sun, uh, mountain, you know, snow caps on mountains are gonna melt and, and the, the polar ice caps are going to melt, and and it's going to cause incredible flooding and inundation of land, which, by the way, is blood and dead fish that will be uh, pushed up on the shore. So uh, living here, if you don't get anything else, listen to this. Living here in the tribulation would not be the ideal period of time in humanity, okay, particularly at the end if if a person were still alive. So the scorching heat, uh, and think about this. It gets really hot, and there's no water. Uh, even worse, okay? So God has really uh, turned up the judgment. And then the fifth judgment in verse 10 that we talked about last week. Look at it real quick. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. In the midst of all that, God's going to turn out light, and it's going to be dark. Now, and I, I can't even begin to think of you know, the sickness, the pain, the loss of water, to heat, the food supply, and now it's dark, and dark in a way that's oppressive. Um, God is basically, at the end of the tribulation, really pouring out his wrath against their sin and against their rebellion, and he's locking them down. And I pointed this out last week. When you're reading the Bible about the eternal lake of fire, hell, where, where men and women who reject God, that's really going to spend eternity, it's not a place of light and fellowship and happiness. The Bible describes it as a place of incredible uh, torment and pain, a lake of fire, and it describes it in darkness, meaning, meaning it's totally dark there. And one of the reasons for that is God is light, and, and where there's the absence of God's presence, there's darkness, and so many applications of that. Well, hell will be that way. Those men and women who have rejected God in their lifetime will be then separated from God what they wanted in the first place, uh, forever in a place. So God kind of creates, if you will, a little bit of that on earth right here at the end of the tribulation. So the last thing I would say in review and set in the context, what do you think, you don't have to answer out loud, but think in your own mind, a person who, would, who will be alive in that time and they see these direct supernatural judgments of God it would seem like a reasonable person would go to themselves, self, this is not working out real well, uh, you know, sores, and no water, and it's hot as blue blazes, um, and, and, and listen, and the Bible says they knew God was doing it, they knew who was doing it, Jehovah God, you would think they would repent, right, you would think they would say, God, I get it, You know, I'm sorry for my sin, I repent, and I believe on you. But the Bible says, not only will they not repent, but they blaspheme his name. They're, They're rebellious against God, even in the midst of this judgment. Now listen, you say, how does a person get to that point? How is it possible that a person can so reject God that in the face of, listen, in the face of overwhelming evidence that God is who he says he is, and that we ought to repent and come to him, how could that happen? And the Bible calls that the condition of being a reprobate, meaning a person has, has rejected God so long and so constantly and so hard-heartedly and pursued sin with such a passion that at some point in their life, God says, okay, have it your way. Have your sin. And sin has its own built-in consequences. These folks who have followed Antichrist will be turned over to that condition Uh, And so they will not repent. Now, that's the first five. And then the sixth angel, we'll pick up in verse 12 uh, for today. Look at that with me. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. Now, this judgment, this bowl judgment, is different from the first five because it doesn't really bring any more pain, if you will. It doesn't bring any more uh any more devastation, it simply dries up the Euphrates River. Um, that in itself is not a is not a small thing. Let me let me kind of get your thought get you thinking about that. This is not like the creek dried up because there's been no rain, okay? The Euphrates River is 1800 miles long. It starts in, in the Ararat Mount Ararat mountain range. the snow caps there and runs 1800 miles and empties into the Persian Gulf. I can only imagine that with the intensity of the sun that we just talked about, melting all the ice in the upper atmosphere, that the Euphrates River is going to be flooded. I mean, I can only imagine that it's going to be flooded in a way that it's never been flooded before and that there won't be any bridges or roads that will all be washed out. God is preparing here in this judgment the path or the way for the kings from the east to come to destroy Israel so that God can judge them. Well, they can't get from the east toward the west if all the rivers are flooded. Everybody following that? Particularly the Euphrates. The Euphrates River, by the way, when you read the Bible, is that eastern boundary that God set up with Abraham, saying this is the extent of the land of Israel. This is going to be what I'm going to give you to the Tigris and Euphrates rivers all the way from the Mediterranean Sea. And so this border river, if you will, in the tribulation, this judgment, God's going to simply dry it up. It's going to evaporate it which will be a, a definitive miracle given, uh, given probably its flood state of water and blood and the ice that's melted down off the mountain. So God is preparing the way, if you will, for his judgment on these kings. Now what you'll see in just a moment is these kings are going to think they're coming east of their own accord. They're going to think they're coming to, uh, uh, to destroy God's people. Or they're going to think they're coming to do whatever their motive is, that God's going to uh, allow them to be deceived. But actually, God's setting a trap for them. They're going to come, and when Jesus comes back, it's going to be the Battle of Armageddon. So the kings of the east, who is that? Well, you can look in your map in your Bible or look on a map online, and there's a whole bunch of people east of Israel. Okay, uh, Predominantly China, they're the largest group. And then there's some other groups in between there. And by the way, I was looking it up this week. You know who has the largest standing army in the world? China. Two million in in 2020, this year, because there's there's, uh, websites that keep up with military sizes. In 2020, they have 2,035,000 foot soldiers. You know who has the second largest army in the world? This doesn't matter here, but it's just kind of neat. India. India has the second largest army. You know who has the third? Us. We have have a million active. We have a little over a million active, but we have one of the larger reserve military forces. So if we called up all our reserves, uh, we'd be up near a couple million as well. But the point is, China is east of Israel, and a large army is going to move from the east to the battle of Armageddon, and I really believe it's going to be them. I think it's going to be uh, predominantly them and others. I mean, how do you move an army of two million people? Carefully, I don't know, in a truck, uh, you know, but probably on land, right? You're not going to fly them all over there. So God drives up the Euphrates River for them to come that way. Now, we're told here, verses 13 and 14 and verse 16, uh, God's plan and how it happens. Look at verse 13. John said, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Verse 16, and they gathered them together in a place called in the Hebrew Armageddon or the Valley of Megiddo. Now, what we understand here is this very clearly. Don't let the don't let the frog thing mess with you. I'll, let me explain that. Who who is the dragon? Now we've been studying the book of Revelation for months now. Remember, John already identified who these are. We don't have to guess. Remember now, when when John uses things that illustrate, he usually defines them for us. The dragon is Satan, right? And and then who is the if we have the dragon, we got the beast, who's the Antichrist, and then we have the false prophet. So we have the three, the three persons if you will the unholy trinity who were involved in the tribulation and what happens is John sees demons go out from these guys and the idea that it looks like a frog all has to do with the description of a demon cold and slimy and all that kind of stuff but the fact is these demons go out meaning from their mouth meaning their influence and they go out to these kings of the east to deceive them everybody following that goes out to lead them to come west to set up in the trap so that they can come to the great judgment day of God. And so these demons go out and influence them. And how do they do it? It says there in verse 14 that they perform signs, miracles, miracles of deception. People are so easily deceived when they see something that they think is a a miracle or some kind of supernatural thing. And so these demons will lead in that. They will go out, no doubt use people, use the false prophet, use the false religion. And these, these nations to the east will be deceived in the coming west to fight against God's people. Now you say, well, what will move them west? Well, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say maybe a rabid anti-Semitism. Because remember, in the last half of the tribulation, Antichrist is going to turn against Israel. He's going to try to destroy them. So maybe they want to join forces with Antichrist and wipe out Israel. Now, just to remind you, why would Satan want to move a bunch of people to wipe out Israel? Well, he's been trying to do it throughout human history. Why would he want to do it? Because God said he's going to set up a kingdom and King Jesus is going to sit over those people. And so Satan thinks, if I can kill all the Jews and kill all the Hebrews, then God can't set up his kingdom. But is God going to let that happen? No, he's not. Well, maybe these kings in the East think, man, we're going to join forces with Antichrist and we're going to come over and we're going to destroy all these. Maybe it's a religious fervor. Maybe, maybe it's a, an anti-religious thing. In fact, maybe... We don't know. I'm just throwing out possibilities here. Maybe the people in the East just flat out get tired of the Antichrist. He's going to have all the armies in Europe, and he's going to have all that part of the world locked down, and maybe they think, you know what? We better go get the oil while we can get it. We better go get the natural resources while we can get it, and we got the army to do it, so we're going over there. Who knows why God? Listen, God's going to use whatever motive, those, those political leaders, whatever motive, whatever thing that comes to their mind, they're going to come to the west toward Israel, and it's going to be a trap. God's going to bring them there, and judgment's going to fall on them at Armageddon. Now, there's a couple of things to remember here. Though man, political leaders, think they're the, they're the source of all their ideas to do what they do, what do we know? We know that God's sovereign. And he superintends that stuff. And just because somebody makes a political decision or some political leader or king or potentate decides to do something, God can use whatever they decide to bring about his purposes. And that's exactly what's going to happen here. And by the way, I've resisted the, I almost almost paused our study in Revelation to do a a three or four weeks study on the the relationship of Christians to the government. I might do that later, but I'm not going to do it right now. But let me say this. It doesn't matter. I mean, in this country, God bless America, we have the right to vote and we have freedom and we can let our voice be heard. And I encourage you to do that. But whoever wins elections, whoever wins political office, whether it be locally in the county, the, the, the governor, the, all the way up to the White House, they don't supersede God. They don't, whatever, whoever sits in the office, whether you agree with them or not, whether you think that's the person you want in there or not, don't freak out and lose sleep and go crazy and cry and lay on the floor kicking and squalling. Knock that stuff off. I mean, come on. The Lord Jesus Christ is the king. And it's his world. And he holds it in his hand. And quite honestly, let's just, let's just be transparent. This country deserves to get whacked from God. I mean, what in the world are we thinking about sometimes? And that has nothing to do with anybody who sits in the office. So that's my commercial for today. Just relax, okay? I mean, just relax. But we see it right here, don't we? I mean, these kings in the east think they're the ones making decisions. They think, man, we're going to go over there and do whatever we're going to do, whatever their motive is. But no, God's sovereign because God's bringing them there for his purpose of judgment. He's bringing them there to bring in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, which happens right after the battle of Armageddon. So man's not really in control like he thinks he is all the time. Now, right in the middle of all this, in verse 15, Jesus gives some encouragement to those who are saved and gives some warning to those who are worried a little bit okay look at verse 15 let's spend a few minutes on this verse jesus said behold now this is jesus speaking he said behold i am coming as a thief blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments lest he walk naked and they see his shame now why did jesus in the middle of verses 13 and 14 and 16 which is all about bringing the kings from the east and the judgment and said why does god why does jesus insert this in there in verse 15 right in the middle of that listen because god listen very god has never done anything that he hadn't warned us about everybody get that god has never judged he's never done anything that he didn't tell us he was going to do it i mean thousands of years before jesus came he said hey i'm, I'm going sin i'm gonna send savior i mean before israel went into captivity for two or three hundred years god sent prophet after prophet after prophet said hey uh, you guys got to repent or I'm going I'm ju- to send you into captivity. I'm going to judge you. I'm going to send somebody to punish you. So what does Jesus say right here? He said, hey, listen, behold. What does he say? I'm coming. Oh, and it's going to be like a thief. What does that mean? Uh, it's going to be quick. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be unexpected. I'm not going hey, to say, hey, tomorrow I'm coming. No, I'm telling you right now I'm coming. So be ready. And when I show up, you'll be ready. Do you think people today are being ready? Mm. Hey, do you think Christians are being ready? Probably not. Jesus said, I'm going to come like a thief. I'm going to come quick. Now, I'm going to tell you this applies to two things. Same principle. Let me cover them real quick. Number one, this applies to the rapture of the church for Christians. Jesus said, I'm coming quickly. It doesn't mean like soon. It means when he comes, it's going to happen in a hurry. Like, how's the rapture going to happen? Remember what Paul said to the church in Thessalonica? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in the blink of an eye, the rapture's going to happen. Boom. We'll be here one second, next second. Praise God. We're out of here, man, like a rocket. It's going to be quickly. Jesus said, Hey, blessed are those who are watching. Matter of fact, think about this. Not only the rapture, but his coming, the battle of Armageddon. He said, When I show up, it's going to be quick, it's going to be sudden and the world's not going to be ready. He says two things about being prepared here. Number one, he says, watch. What does that mean? It means anticipate. It means to be alert. It means to not be asleep. It means, to, it means to be paying attention. Look, I know Jesus is coming back, so I want to do everything I'm supposed to be doing, so if he shows up today, I'm ready. Hey, here's the question I often think about. What is it you want Jesus to find you doing when he shows up? What state of mind do you want Jesus to find you in when he shows up? Just a question. Because you know he's coming and it's going to be quick. It's going to be sudden. Hey, Jesus gave us an example of what it looks like to watch, to be ready. It has two parts. Number one, the primary way to be ready for the return of Jesus is to be saved. Everybody listening online. The primary way to be ready for Jesus to come back is to be saved, to be born again. Be born again by faith in Jesus Christ, to be, to be forgiven of your sin, to go to Jesus, confess your sin. God, I'm sorry for my sin. I know I'm a sinner. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross to pay for my sin. You rose again the third day. Forgive me. Save me. If you're a born again child of God, you're ready for Jesus to come. You might not be ready, ready for Jesus to come, but you'll be ready in the most important part because you're born again. You're a child of God. And when the rapture happens, you're going with him. So make sure that you're saved. Jesus gave an example of being ready, of being saved, of being ready when he comes. In Matthew 25, you don't have to turn back there. I'm going to tell you the story real quick. It's a great, great parable. It's a parable of the ten virgins who are waiting on the bridegroom. Remember that parable? They have five wise virgins and five unwise virgins, right? The five wise virgins bring their lamps because they're waiting through the evening. They don't know when the bridegroom's coming. The bridegroom's coming for the wedding celebration represents Jesus coming for his church, the rapture. And then five of them didn't bring extra oil. Five brought extra oil, five brought no extra oil. So they wait and they wait and they wait, and the bridegroom takes a long time. Jesus has taken a long time from our perspective. It's been 2,000 years, right? And he had not come back yet. So these, So these virgins are waiting and waiting. Well, the five who didn't have any extra oil... What happened to their lamps? They ran out of oil, right? Well, just as they're running out of oil, guess what happened? The announcement comes that the bridegroom's coming. And so the five unwise virgins look over at the five wise virgins and say, hey, can we have some of your oil? And did isn't like this in the King James, but this is kind of what they said. No, nah, we'd like to help you, but no. I mean, if we give you some of our oil, then we won't have enough oil. I tell you what you do, you run back into town and get some oil. So so the five unwise virgins got to go all the way back into town or somewhere back home to get oil at midnight. Much more difficult. While the five wise virgins have oil for their lamps, they're still burning, And the bridegroom comes, and guess what happens? They all get to go into the party and the door's shut. Who was prepared and who wasn't prepared? The five wise virgins with the extra oil were prepared. Now listen, in the Bible, oil typically represents the Holy Spirit typically re- represents those who have the Spirit. Those who are saved have the Spirit, do we not? If you're saved, the Holy Spirit lives in you. So those who were prepared were saved. Those who were not prepared were not saved. Now, later, the five unwise virgins, they find some oil somewhere, and they come back, and they knock on the door at the, at the celebration. They say, hey, we're back. Can we get in? Listen to the answer, Matthew 25, 11. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. Now this is Jesus talking, but he answered and said, "Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Mm. Watch therefore, for you know not neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming." That's exactly, that's exactly what Jesus is saying in Revelation 16. Hey, I'm coming back. Watch, and come back. Be prepared. Now let me ask you a rhetorical question: How many times did Jesus have to say that? One should be enough, right? I I used to tell my kids that all the time. How many times do I got to tell you something? One should be enough. Did you hear me the first time? If I have to repeat it, it'll be bad. Jesus has told us over and over and over, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. Be ready. And secondly, notice he said, keep your garments. What does that mean? Well, for those who are saved, those of us who are born again, and I pray that you all are, And I pray that you watching online have a a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. You've been born again. In the sight of Jesus Christ, in the sight of God the Father, we are pure in Jesus. But we live in a sinful world, don't we? And the idea of keeping our garments means our lifestyle. It means means living in a way that it demonstrates our anticipation of the come of Christ. How, How do you do that? Well, living in obedience living in holiness, living in the pursuit of holiness. Now, we all know uh, that none of us are perfect even after we're saved. None of us measure up to all that God wants us to be. Every single man and woman in this this room and watching online, every man and woman in the world who's born again has weaknesses in their flesh and in their life, and we all fail. But what he's saying here is this, the habit of our lives, the 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 way of our life should be one of of obedience and one of holiness and that listen waywardness and unholiness should be the exception to the lifestyle meaning we're we're putting on the garment and we're keeping our garments unspotted and we're keeping a short list list of sins we're confessing and we're confessing our sins to god on a daily basis or on an event by event basis as god convicts us so jesus said to be ready listen watch And keep your garments, keep yourself to be ready for him to come, okay? Now, the application is very clear. The question would be, are you online? Are you here this morning? Are you prepared? Are you watching? Do you know that you're saved? Do you know that you're born again? Do you know you're ready if Jesus should show up right now? I pray that you are. Now, the seventh bowl judgment, very quickly. Look at verses 17 to 21. And this is the final bowl judgment, which will bring the tribulation to an end uh, in the battle of Armageddon shortly thereafter. Verse 17, then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying it's done. Now that's God from the throne of heaven because remember when this whole thing started with the seven bowl judgments, the temple was filled with the wrath and the glory of God and nobody could go in so nobody else was in there to talk. Everybody follow me? So it's God. He's speaking out of the temple. It's done. And by the way, in the Greek, that phrase it's done means an event with perpetual application. It means it's an event that has carrying on effect or consequences forever Jesus said it's done when he hung on the cross God said right here it's done meaning it's finished okay verse 18 and there were noises and thunderings and lightnings John said and there was a great earthquake note that such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth so this earthquake's going to be the most severe ever experienced on planet earth and I think it'll shake the whole earth it'll be an earthquake the globe over now look at verse 19 and the great city, which is Jerusalem, was divided into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. Now look at verse 21. Here's the culmination of the judgment at the end of the tribulation. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent or a hundred pounds. Men bla- Now look at this. Men blasphemed God. Because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. I believe what we have here, very quickly to tie it up, we have a reforming of the earth in preparation for the millennial kingdom. In this seventh bowl judgment, when the angel pours out the bowl, he pours it out in the air. God says from heaven, from the temple in heaven, it's done. This is the last one that's finished. It's coming to completion lightnings and then an earthquake Now this earthquake is of such severity the world over that it wipes out islands in the ocean so for all those rich people in the world who bought an island might want to move back to the mainland at some point okay because when this earthquake comes uh, the islands are going to disappear God's going to wipe them out and the mountains notice this now the mountain ranges, and the world is full of, of majestic mountain ranges, beautiful, even in our own country. God's going to reduce them. They're going to fall. He's gonna, it says right here, the, the mountains were not found, meaning he's going to level them. Okay. Now, why is God going to do that? So the earth is going to be, in this last earthquake, really reformed, I think, to, to some semblance of what it was before the flood but it says specifically here of the great city, which is Jerusalem, that it's gonna be divided. There's gonna be a new valley. And here's, and again, there are varying opinions about this, but here's what I think God's doing in this whole thing. Where is King Jesus gonna sit when he comes back after the battle of Armageddon? Where's he gonna set up his throne? In Jerusalem, right? Where is, when you read about the millennial kingdom, and we'll get there, where is everybody in the world gonna to travel to to worship Jesus? Jerusalem, here's what I think's happening right here. I think Jerusalem is gonna become the paradise of the earth. Matter of fact, I think Jerusalem and this whole dividing thing with a new valley, to make a valley you raise up, I think where Jesus is gonna sit is gonna be the highest spot on the the face of the planet. So when it says we're gonna travel up to Jerusalem to worship God, you really are gonna be traveling up to Jerusalem to worship God because all the mountains are gone, the islands are gone, and Jesus is going to be sitting on the throne of David in Jerusalem. And I and listen, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of details about it. But obviously, Jerusalem itself is going to be reshaped. There's going to be a new valley. And I believe it's going to be like the Garden of Eden. And listen, Jesus Jesus is not going to sit in a city that looks like junk, what do you think? I mean, Jesus is going to sit in a city where the king is, where he's going to sit on the throne and rule the world. It's going to be a beautiful place. And later, when we get toward the end of this, we're going to see where the nations— listen. The nations in the millennial kingdom will travel to Jerusalem. There'll be road signs, Jesus, this way, right? And there'll be people that are going to go there, and they're going to worship him, and they're going to go to where he sits, and they're going to hear him teach. Can you imagine for a 1,000 years, Jesus is going to speak wisdom in the whole world? Man, it's going to be a magnificent time. It's going to be that time God promised Abraham and Israel, and the Jews are going to be his nation. And I and I simply believe that this seventh uh, bold judgment is, is preparation for that because immediately following this, those kings from the east are going to come over and there's going to be the battle of Armageddon and Jesus is going to come back with the armies of heaven, which, by the way, we're coming back with them. And he's going to speak and those armies are going to be destroyed. And, and listen, remember, blood spatter on the horses throughout the valley, 200 miles worth of slaughter, greatest slaughter the world's ever seen. Jesus is going to kill all those armies, kill all those people, and he's going to set up his kingdom. Man, that's, that's real stuff. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. The last thing, verse 21, look at it. Great hailstones fall out of heaven. Great chunks of ice. Now, I've seen some large hailstones. Crack your windshield on your car, tear up your roof. You know, call your insurance company, hey, come fix my roof. I've never seen any 100 pounds apiece. I mean, imagine that. 100-pound piece of ice falling out of the sky. That hit you on the head, you're done. I mean, that won't just tear up your shingles. That puts a hole in your roof, right? comes right inside. I mean, 100 pounds. God's going to pound the earth with these things in judgment. And again, last thing we'll close. You would think, I mean, would you not think with all this, the earthquake and all the stuff going on and the 100-pound hailstones, that somebody would go, hey, I'm changing wagons here, man. Why not, I'm not following Antichrist anymore. I'm this, the God of heaven. He's serious about his stuff, man. 100 pound hailstones on the world. But they don't. They blaspheme his name and blame him and, and curse him. And you say, man, why would God judge people so harshly? Because of that? Because their heart is so hard that they will not acknowledge who he is and they won't come to him. Let me close with this. Is it, that's not you today, is it? That's not you today, I hope. As you watch online from your living room or wherever you're watching from, on your phone, on your tablet, Maybe here today in a balcony down here. That's not you, is it? Have you, have you hardened your heart against God where you know you need to be saved, but you say, you know, I'm just not going to do that. I, I want my life. I want to be God in my own life. Listen, don't do that. Come to Jesus while you have the opportunity. Come see, come, be saved while you have the opportunity. Listen, today is easy. Today is easy. Come to Jesus today. Confess your sin. Jesus died on the cross. He loves you. He paid for your sin. God loves you. He wants to save you. Remember, 1 Timothy 2, 4, God said he would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. God wants you to be saved, but he won't make you. Would you come of your own free will today while you sit there? Would you pray at home? Would you pray, God, forgive my sins, save me today? Would you do that? Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace, your warnings. Even in judgment, God, you're gracious. Even as judgment progresses through the tribulation, you will give that generation of people an opportunity to be saved. And unfortunately, many won't. They'll follow Antichrist. God, they will rebel. They'll cuss your name. They'll curse you. They'll blaspheme. God, they'll they'll lose their opportunity because they reject it. Today, I pray that men and women who come under the hearing of this word, online or here, would not miss their opportunity. But right now, God, we pray and ask for your forgiveness. God, they would just cry out to you, God, I'm a sinner and I know it. Forgive me. God, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for my failures. God, save my soul. Make me different on the inside. God, you'll do it. You'll save everybody who asks. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing a song. I'm here to pray with you if I can help you.